0: Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Thanks so much for coming here. I uh, I am just shocked. It took about 45 minutes to get the first service to calm down and, and stop their conversations. You guys were like... Liking- 12 seconds. Amazing. Uh, My name is Bob Vogelar. I am not uh, a part of the LCF uh, staff. In fact, I'm just a regular attender like you. I do uh, co lead a small group and occasionally serve on a teaching team. So, about once every uh, year or so, I get to come up and pinch hit. So, I say that because Uh, Tim Fritzen who is the lead pastor here he'll be back in a couple of weeks and so if uh, I blow it today give us another chance next week you'll hear uh, Brian Bliss he'll do a phenomenal job and then uh, Tim will be right back here Uh, Tim's going to be starting a series on Hebrews in a couple of weeks so that's next and I think in your bulletin there's some information in the back on that Hebrews uh, study if you want to take a look at that Uh, For those who who know me, this is going to be a little bit redundant, but for those who don't know who I am, it's important that you get some context here. I am the dad to three kids, uh, Dawson, who attends Liberty High School. He's an 11th grader. And then Annalise and Elliot uh, both attend Liberty Middle School. Uh, Annalise is an 8th grader and Elliot is a 7th grader. Uh, I want to start this morning by using my youngest son, Elliot, uh, and an experience we had with him to illustrate a point I want to make. So for those of you who don't know Elliot, I brought this picture uh, of Elliot so you can get an idea. He's a seventh grader. Um, I love this age. My wife, uh, uh, when my kids got to middle school, she kind of said, okay, they're yours, because... My teaching career and my career as an administrator was at the middle level. I did a couple years at the high school, but predominantly at the middle level, and I love that age. One of my favorite things to do uh, when I was a principal was get the permanent files that would come in with kids from the elementary school, and you'd see all the pictures on the on the file uh, from kindergarten, first, second, all the way up to middle school, and it was fun to just see that transformation. It's very different when you're a parent. You look at those pictures completely differently. Uh, they grow up so fast. But with regard to Elliot, my seventh grader, he's awesome. He makes me laugh uh, almost constantly. His sense of humor is uh, world-class. I just absolutely adore this kid. Um, but what you may not know about our story and I did get permission to share this from Elliot, is that Elliot and his sister Annalise are biological siblings to each other, but they're not biological to Charlotte Dawson or me. We had the great honor and privilege of getting entrusted to adopt them from Russia 10 years ago this past summer, so it's already been a decade. Uh, I have a video of the two of them, um, Annalise and Elliot, uh, only a few weeks after their new lives in the United States. They were both fluent Russian speakers, as fluent as a two or three-year-old can be, uh, but they were super hungry to pick up the English language as best they could. And and this clip kind of shows just how much they were trying to learn English. So here's the clip. Hi, baby cows. Baby cows. Hi, baby cows. Hi. Elliot, what do you think of the baby cows? Uh, baby. I love that video. It's one of my, uh, my all-time favorites. Uh, just as Elliot and Annalise were having to learn English, believe it or not, Charles and I were also having to learn a little Russian. In those early days, uh, it was only by our tiny Russian vocabulary that we were able to communicate. And you can imagine all the opportunities for miscommunication. Uh, but that's where the story comes in that I want to share with you about Elliot. Um, whenever Elliot didn't get his way, if he was uh, wanting to leave the house at uh, you know nine o'clock at night with no shoes on and just to pull up, we would stop in front of the door and we'd say Niet, ne nada," which means "no, don't. You can't go outside uh, after dark, play in the street. We're not going to allow that." And then what he would do is he would um, make this face, and I brought another picture here of his face. <laughs> And uh, I wish I had this on video, but that face was always accompanied by him sticking his, his chin into uh, his shoulder and rocking back and forth. And he would say, boo-doo, boo-doo. He just kept repeating boo-doo. Um, he was the only one of our kids to do this, so we didn't have an opportunity to really know what boo-doo meant. Um, we, uh, we just kind of chalked it up to gibberish. You know, Annalise never said voodoo. She never did that, so we just thought it was him. So this went on for months, and every time Elliot didn't get, a, get his way, Charla and I would both get voodooed. It was just kind of the routine in our house in those early days. But all that changed when a Russian-speaking international student came into our lives. Uh, she attended William Jewell from Turkmenistan and spoke fluent uh, Russian. Her name was Ina. And uh because we had access now to someone who was a fluent Russian speaker, we asked her, you know, when Elliot does this, you know, puts his chin in his uh, in his shoulder rocks and says boo-doo, what, what does that mean? What is he saying? And she laughed out loud and she said, Boodoo means I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the reason uh the reason for sharing this, and if you know Elliot, it's hilarious because he's just not that, he's not wired like that, but for whatever reason he was when, when he wanted to do it his way. Um, but the reason I'm sharing this is, is I think that oftentimes we live the same way in our relationship with God. And let me help you understand what I'm getting at by that. Um, we make our own decisions, and if I want something that God doesn't want for me, I kind of utter my own version of voodoo, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, What Elliot failed to understand in those moments, and I think what I failed to understand too, is that a good father directs our steps with our best interest in mind. My nets and nenadas were not to deny Elliot freedom or happiness, but to direct him on a path that was truly in his best interest, even if he couldn't see it in that moment. And if I, in all my flaws, have this desire in my heart for Elliot at all times, how much more complete and perfect is God's desire for this same thing in our lives? Our passage this morning is from Proverbs 16.9. So you want to turn there with me, Proverbs 16.9. And it says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Now your translation might say the Lord establishes our steps. The Hebrew word that's translated as determines or establishes here um, literally means to make certain or firm. In other words, God is the one that can make certain our steps. God has chosen to be so intimately involved in the steps of our lives that it should be easy to trust his sovereignty over every step when he chooses to do a step intervention in our lives, when our plans are not aligned with his, we should be confident that it's in our best interest, even if we don't fully understand the reasons for this. But I want you to notice something else about this passage. This proverb does not argue against our planning. There's nothing wrong with planning. We should plan. What this proverb is saying, however, is that in the midst of our planning, Keep in mind that God is ultimately the best person to be in control of all the steps. He has a plan for our lives, and He wants us to live in submission to that plan because it is a perfect, it is a compassionate, and it is an ideal plan for our lives. The world doesn't work this way. In fact, the wisdom of the world is sending quite a different message. The wisdom of the world says, trust your gut. Trust your own instincts. Follow your heart. There's all kinds of different versions of this. If you want to do it, put your mind to it. You can be anything you want to be. The world is wholly committed to this message. And advertisers hope we go with our gut in every decision because they've found our gut is very easy to manipulate. Even our national resources, believe it or not, are leveraged to the belief that your gut is the right director of your paths. Did you know that the Navy spends nearly $3.9 million a year on a program of research specifically on intuitive thinking processes, how to hone your gut instincts? But recently, scholars at Harvard University have totally debunked this notion. They published that our gut instincts are worthless far more often than they're spot on, so much so that these researchers actually warn us against trusting our gut instincts in the making of any decisions of high consequence. If our gut instincts can be inaccurate, why does the world's wisdom put so high a value on this mode of decision-making? Perhaps it's because the world feels that decisions made on our gut instincts are really decisions made on our own terms. Elliot's voodoo behavior was solely because he didn't get to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. No matter if I might better understand the best way to keep him safe and happy. Society has duped us into believing that we are happiest when we're free to do anything we want to do. Even though our perfect Heavenly Father has a desire to give us a life beyond compare, is vastly superior in His ability to chart the most fulfilling path for us, and cares far more for us than anyone, including ourselves, could ever care for us. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.19, but the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. The wisdom of God's word in Proverbs is sending us a very different message than what the world does. Instead of trust your gut, we're told to trust God. The word's wisdom, just a few verses earlier in Proverbs 16.3, says this, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. God's wisdom says that our plans succeed when our plan-making decisions are committed to or aligned with God's sovereign authority. Why is that? Whenever we say, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done, we are choosing to set aside our voodoo's and saying, I'm not going to do it anyway. We acknowledge that his way of thinking is good, it's pleasing, it's perfect, therefore it's worthy of our trust. Unfortunately, we cannot shift our thinking from the world's wisdom to the Word's wisdom until after we deal with one very important decision. The fact is that our sin separates us from God. We have to reconcile that broken relationship or we'll never be able to align decisions with His. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says this, "'Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor His ear too dull to hear.'" But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. If we are living separated from God, we are blind to the word's wisdom in passages like Proverbs 6, 9. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says it this way, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Without seeing your need for Christ, the redeeming work of Jesus is not reconciling your broken relationship with God. And if you haven't settled that decision first, you can't possibly separate from the world's wisdom in your decision-making. You're stuck. For others here, you may have been a Christian for a while, and yet you still don't find it easy or clear to discern God's personal will for your life, even though you desire to commit your plan-making decisions to him. So, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning kind of unpacking how to practically apply this. Pastor and teacher Andy Stanley puts it this way He says, There are three theological terms to understand when describing God's will. There's God's providential will, these are the things that God's going to accomplish no matter what. Nothing will thwart God's providential will. The second theological term is related to what's called God's moral will, how God wants all of us to live a life set apart. And the third term is God's personal will for each of us. And Andy Stanley says that the more we know God and His providential will, the more intimately we're walking with Him, and we understand the things He's going to do anyway, and the more we strive to live according to His moral will, then the clearer we become in understanding His personal will for our lives. So knowing his providential will, striving to live by his moral will, and in the middle of those two things is a clearer understanding or picture of God's personal will for us. So if you're saved, if you're set on growing intimately in your relationship with Christ, and if you're striving to be like him in regard to his moral will, then how do you practically apply your plan-making decisions to be aligned with God's personal will for your life? You're teed up, set up, ready to do it. How do you do it? So I want us to take a look at this verse because it's really foundational. This is Isaiah 55:8 8 and 9. And this verse helps us understand something very important about God. He says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What God is saying here is that we don't naturally think like he does. His mind is not our mind, and we are in no position on our own to change that. God created us in his image, that's true, but our post-fall default mode is to think in ways entirely unlike the thoughts of God. So if we can't think like God thinks, we can't possibly discern his will in any capacity. He's going to be having a will in mind that we don't clue in on because we just don't think like he does unless something else happens happens first. So take a look at this verse. This is Romans 12, 2. And here Paul gives us guidelines for living as a redeemed people in a fallen world. He says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I've got three observations about this verse. First, our natural course, even as believers, is to conform to the pattern of this world. That's just what we do. Even though we're saved by Christ, we are redeemed, we are still in a body that's steeped in sin. And if we're not paying careful attention, we will drift and conform to the pattern of this world. The second observation is that in order to be able to test and approve what God's will is, we can't be conformed to the world. We must be transformed, and the only way to be transformed is to continually engage in the behaviors that renew our mind. Renewing your mind is nothing mystical. It's not complicated. I want to unpack it here for you. It's lived out in this simple truth. When we are growing deep and abiding in a, I'm sorry, in a deep and abiding way with someone else, we begin to assimilate. Think of it in terms of your relationships. If you're married, your spouse, when you guys were dating, you probably were very different from one another. You get married, you spend time together, some of you 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Over that time, you know them. You know what's going to make them happy. You know what's going to make them mad. You, you, you start to anticipate their thoughts. You finish their sentences. That is a natural thing that happens when two people grow in intimate fellowship with one another. And so the same exact principle applies in our intimate relationship with God. If we're not spending any intentional time alone with God or very little time alone with God in His Word and in prayer, we're severing the very thing that allows for an intimate relationship to develop. I mean, think about it. God's Word is His communication to us. Prayer is our communication back to Him if you, in your relationship with your spouse or your brothers or sisters or coworkers, if it was only one-way communication, always you praying and never you reading, if it was only one-way communication, you wouldn't have the same relationship that you have. There's something about spending intentional time alone with God in His Word and in prayer that allows you to start renewing your mind. You are transforming and you are assimilating to God's way of thinking. The third observation here really gets at the crux of why we would want to do that. It says that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Why would we not want to align our plans to God's personal good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives? In fact, it's safe to say we would be missing out on an unimaginable joy if we ended up misaligning our plans and God's will. After all, something that's good and pleasing brings us joy, and something that is perfect is without flaw. There's no mistake in God's personal will for your life. It absolutely is perfect, and it is the pathway for a good and pleasing result, a joy-filled life. When we have made it our habit to continually renew our mind, we start to see things God's way. His worldview ends up being our worldview. And not only is it our worldview, it's the right worldview. It's a contagious worldview. And I want us to look at what I mean by that. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. If you want to flip your Bibles to Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why is that? Why would Jesus want us to shift our focus from earthly treasures, temporal things of value, to heavenly or eternal things of value? Well, verse 21 shows you the answer. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If God's personal will for our lives is going to involve storing up treasures in heaven, it's essential that we know what Jesus means by that expression. What he means is that we are to value the things that have an everlasting or eternal return on the investment. The problem is that nearly everything we encounter, everything we invest our time, our talents, our treasury in are temporary. Buying that house or that car, getting that promotion, all of those things will have an end date. In fact, I can only find two things in all of my searching of Scripture, only two things that are guaranteed to last forever. Do you know what they are? The Word of God and the souls of people. I can't find anything else on this side of eternity that lasts forever forever that I can be investing my time in other than the word of God and the souls of people. And these are the two verses I'm talking about here. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says this, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God is eternal. God will preserve it forever. Matthew 25 46 is the other verse. Jesus himself said, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. The second eternally lasting treasure in God's economy are the souls of people. And that's the souls of every one of us. Whether we've put our faith in Christ or we haven't, every one of us will take a path and we will have an eternal destination for our souls. So how do I align all of my plan-making decisions in ways that prioritize the two things that we can invest in on this side of eternity that lasts forever, the Word of God and the souls of people. It's really very simple, and Jesus shows us how simple it is. Flip with me to John 14, 12. John 14, 12. John 14, 12. Jesus is talking here, and he says, Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. The emphasis here is that Jesus is not saying some of the people who believe in me, but everyone, everyone who believes in me will do what I have been doing. He says that if we really believe in him, we'll be doing in our life and ministry what Jesus did in his life and ministry. And Jesus is sure of this because he's the one that's going to the Father to advocate on our behalf, to advocate for us in our will-aligned, plan-making decisions. Since God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for us is going to be successful, why on earth would we want to miss out on that? Why would we want to do things our own way? After all, a perfect will would be a will without flaw. I think a statement like the one Jesus made in John 14, 12 might scare us a little bit because we think this means we have to quit our job or sell everything we have or start living in the wilderness. And it's because when we read in Scripture, we see these lifestyles modeled by people who left everything to follow Christ. For Jesus and some others, it did mean this. But it doesn't mean that for everyone. It didn't mean that for everyone even in the New Testament time. I'm not a full-time missionary. I'm not a pastor. I don't work for a parachurch ministry. I'm an assistant superintendent in a local school district. I work probably 50 to 60 hours a week during heavy times of the year in service to nearly 13,000 students. I have very little margin in my life for much else. And I imagine I described your life Whatever your work is, you too are probably putting in 50, 60 hours a week, working hard with very little margin in your life. But I think Jesus gives us a gentle and, quite honestly, a beautiful roadmap for living our lives aligned with the things that Jesus did and getting to do even greater things than these. Here's what I mean by that. In the book of Matthew, chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, the first part of chapter 10, I'll show you what I'm talking about. So flip there. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Then chapter 10 starts. He called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. Then uh, 2 through 4 gives the names of the disciples. And then verse 5 says, These 12 he sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. What I want to unpack here is a few things I noticed from the passage. First in verse 36, Jesus reveals his reaction to the crowds and his reaction reveals the way he thinks. And what I see is that the way he thinks is not always how I naturally think. What do we see? In this passage in verse 36, we see that he has deep compassion for their eternal condition. Notice he sees them as harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. I don't think he came upon a crowd of people that were physically being harassed and he's, he's reacting to their temporal needs, stop the harassment. He's seeing them without an advocate. The reason I don't believe that is because he makes reference to them. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And this is a reference to an Old Testament passage. In Ezekiel 34, verse 6, God says this, My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. And a little later in that chapter, God says, Because of this, I will come and be their shepherd. And he's foreshadowing Christ. He's very much talking about a broken condition in a relationship between his people and himself. The lost sheep are people wandering in this broken condition, this unreconciled condition, their eternally destined condition. And that's what Jesus sees when he says he took compassion on them. In that condition, he saw them as harassed and helpless. He saw them as deceived by the God of this age into a spiritual blindness that was setting their eternal course in the wrong direction, away from God. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that Jesus routinely met others' temporary needs. But this goal was never merely to meet their temporary needs. He did this so he would earn the right to be heard on matters related to their eternal needs. Think the woman at the well. Think the feeding of the 5,000, the sparing of the woman from being stoned who was caught in adultery or raising Lazarus from the dead. All of those were temporary needs that Jesus met he was attracted to, by the uh, masses of people were attracted to him because he was meeting temporary needs. And in fact, he even gave his disciples authority when he sent them out to heal diseases, to drive out demons, to meet temporary needs. But he only did this in order to engage in conversations about their greater eternal need. What again is it that Jesus said in John fourteen twelve? What is the work that everyone who believes in Jesus will be doing? It's right here. We will be going after the sheep. We will be taking care of their most important need, their eternal need. For the lost sheep, that need is their salvation because apart from Christ, they are set on a course that guarantees eternal punishment. For the found sheep, for those who are already followers of Christ, we take care of them by building them up, by discipling them, just as we are discipled ourselves. All this so that we can grow in intimacy with God and get to experience the joy of having His priorities become our priorities, aligning our plan-making decisions with His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't let this scare you. It doesn't need to. In fact, if you look closely at the passage, you see that everything that follows that verse 36 is motivated by deep love and compassion. In other words... As we get to know God, as we renew our mind and our thinking becomes more and more like his thinking, we too start to develop a compassion for lost people. And all of the instructions that follow in this passage flow out of that motivation, that deep love and compassion for people. Now I have to confess, most of the time I lack deep compassion for people. The compassion I have for people tend to be people who are in my closest circles of friendship or family relationships. But I come across people's lives all the time who are strangers to me, and I should, if I'm renewing my mind, have deep compassion for them. I should be seeing them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That is evidence to me that my mind is not renewing. And that should cue me to get back into intimate fellowship with God, time in his word, and time in prayer, seeking him. Another reason this shouldn't be scary is I want you to notice the direction that Jesus gave his disciples after this. He didn't say, after he saw everyone harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he didn't grab his 12 and he said, now get out there and frantically run through this entire harvest field until you've converted everyone. Thankfully, that directive is nowhere in Scripture, and Jesus himself never modeled it even once. Since we who believe are to be doing what Jesus was doing, this should be very comforting to us. No, Jesus' first direction to his disciples was to pray. Step one, just pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Folks, we can do this. This takes next to no energy on our part. I'm telling you, if we were being transformed by the renewing of our mind through a deep and abiding habit of time alone with God and his word, it will be easy for us to be in prayer that God will send out people into this harvest field. And in fact, I think we would derive a great deal of joy praying for this harvest field that God would raise up workers to send out to it. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute here. If you read the whole passage, I see where this is going. Jesus asked them to pray that God would send out workers into the harvest field, but then he immediately sends them out. So really, they're just, he's just asking them to pray and then become the answer to their own prayers. But not really. This is what I want you to notice. I want you to notice here is how Jesus sends out the 12. I'm in verse 5 now of chapter 10. He says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles. Do not go among the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. The selectivity on Jesus' part was not because he had no redemptive plan in mind for Gentiles and Samaritans. If you read through the book of John and the book of Acts, you see very clearly God did have a redemptive plan for Gentiles and Samaritans. So why did Jesus exclude those people groups from his disciples? Jesus was selective because if the disciples were doing what he asked them to do in part one, God was sending people out to Samaritans and Gentiles. And so they didn't have to be overwhelmed by those people groups. They could instead just focus on one tiny corner of the harvest field. That could be their corner of the harvest field. And if you think about it, it was the right corner of the harvest field for this group of disciples, the lost sheep of Israel. They were Jewish. This was their corner of the harvest field. They were uniquely wired to reach it. They were especially gifted to reach it. God brought perfection to this instruction by excluding, for this period of time, some people groups and not others. By giving them just one corner of the harvest field, it takes away the feeling of being overwhelmed by all the lost people that could use the gospel message. You see, we don't have to feel overwhelmed by the size of the harvest field, nor do we have to feel like we have to frantically be evangelizing to everyone who crosses our path. All of this is a lie that Satan uses to overwhelm us as a result to cause us to park it on the sidelines while people perish. If we can feel overwhelmed, we shut down and we don't do any of it, and people die. You see, part two of this message All we need to do is say to God, as I'm praying to raise up people to go out into the harvest field, what's my assignment? Here am I. Send me to my corner of the harvest field. I want to align my plan-making decisions with the corner of the harvest field that you have in mind for me. I want all of those plan-making decisions to be committed to this corner of the harvest field, even if I feel inadequate. And God will help you not be overwhelmed by what he assigns to you. As we close, I want to tell you about one individual who gets this. Her name is Margarita Garcia. She's a teacher. I'm an educator. There's a little bias there, but I want you to know what she says applies to any labor force, any neighborhood, any family dynamic. And what she has to say is so important for us to read. She says this, when Jesus is the center of our lives, we don't just get jobs and live, lives, and live life for our sake. We become God's hands and feet. Everything we do is to bring glory to God. We are missionaries in the place where he places us. It might not be the place of our choice or the ends of the earth, but it is God's chosen place to bring his kingdom. Yes, Lord, I said, send me, I'll go. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Do you know your corner of the harvest field? Ms. Garcia does. She knows her corner of the harvest field. And what really excites me is that if I and you are doing part one of that passage in Matthew, we're praying that God will send out workers into this harvest field, then she, down there in Texas, is an answer to my prayer. I'm not sent there, but God did answer my prayer by deciding to send her. Her. And I hope we get to be God's answer to her prayers up here in our community. Just so you know, I too am praying for your corner of the harvest field. As you engage in your plan-making decisions, your individual, unique plan-making decisions, please consider allowing our good, good Heavenly Father to answer my prayers for the harvest field with you. He's been so faithful to us, truly lavish in His love, Let's be transformed. Let's renew our minds. Let's test and approve what God's will is for our corner of the harvest field. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Let's go ahead and stand.